When I was 21, I hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. No, no big deal there. Lots of people have done that. I did it in July, in the middle of the day, with one 12-ounce bottle of water and a bologna sandwich. Some of you have heard this story. My friends and I who were doing this were stupid. <laughs> and we could have died. In fact, one of us got in a lot of trouble. It wasn't me, but one of my friends got in uh, dangerously dehydrated and almost didn't make it. What kept us going, though, through dizziness and blurred vision and near delirium, was the knowledge that if we could just get to that kind of halfway point at Indian Gardens, there was water, guaranteed, guaranteed water. So we kept trudging. Wouldn't it be great if more things in life came with a guarantee, like the water at Indian Gardens? You know, we buy things. And, and they're guaranteed to work for a certain amount of time, and if they, if they don't, we, we get a replacement. But that's just stuff. I mean, what about the really important things? I mean, what if there was a guarantee that if you just kept at it, marriage was going to be wonderful, always? Or that, that you just kept at it, man, more schooling really would improve your lot in life, guaranteed. Or that if you just keep at it, faithfully parenting your children, nothing bad would happen to them, and they would turn out okay. And if we had those kind of guarantees, we would stick with it, even when it got really hard. But as we all know, the thing about life is that there are no guarantees about life especially about the things that really matter to us. Now, I think this is maybe one of the reasons, for some people, Christianity seems incredible, literally unbelievable, not believable. Because Christianity offers a guarantee. Now, not that this life will be great but that the next one will be. If, that is, if you persevere in faith to the end. And people hear that, and they think that sounds like somebody's trying to sell me, you, you know, some, some great property in the Everglades or something, you, you know, that's actually underwater. It sounds like a con job. It, it, it sounds like somebody is promising me something very desirable, but ultimately impossible. And, and, and doing it in order to get me to sacrifice now, right, to sacrifice my present for a future that might not ever arrive. It's not an unreasonable question. I think it's important for us, particularly as Christians, to recognize how incredible the claims of Christianity sound. We're not the first ones to feel that way. If you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
beginning with verse 35. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 35. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, the Black Bibles, uh, these, this is found on page 1021. 1021, 1 Corinthians 15. We've been in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Now, this will be our third week in it. And, and, and we're finally finishing up this morning Paul's long discussion of the resurrection of Jesus and the promised resurrection of believers. And here's the thing. I said we're not the first ones to ask it. Some of the people in Corinth were really skeptical about this idea of resurrection. Only, as we're going to find out this morning, their skepticism was not quite like our skepticism. You know, we're, we're often skeptical as modern people because we're skeptical of the supernatural altogether. And just the idea of the miraculous and the supernatural, that just seems kind of unbelievable. Oh, that wasn't really their skepticism. But for the Corinthians, as we're going to see, they just thought this idea of our bodies being resurrected, they, they thought it was undesirable. Like, who would want that? For, for, for them and their kind of cultural idea of heaven, boy, heaven meant being free of the body, not saddled with it for all eternity. A different kind of skepticism, but skepticism all the same. And to both skeptics, ancient and modern, Paul has the same message. This is really the point of this last section of 1 Corinthians 15. We'll, we'll put it up on the screen. Here it is. Christian, your resurrection is certain. So don't give up before you get there. Your resurrection is certain. So don't give up before you get there. Now, Paul is going to address the skepticism by giving us three reasons for the certainty of our resurrection, which we're going to look at each in turn. And then we'll conclude with what that means for our lives today. All right. So first, the resurrection is certain because creation proclaims it. Creation proclaims it. Look at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you're not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds, its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There's the splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, 
so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. All right, so this section begins with, with this question, the question, well, what kind of body would they have? Now, that question is maybe not what you think, right? They're not imagining zombie movies or video games. They're not thinking like The Last of Us here. That's, that's not their issue. Uh, they're, they're very much a part of their own culture, just like we are. And, and in Greek culture, well, they didn't like the idea that things could change. If something could change, it wasn't good. The perfect was unchangeable. Anything that could change was less than, than perfect. So for them, like bodies and heaven just feels like a contradiction in terms. Now, it may be that these particular Christians that Paul is talking to here are not full-blown Platonists, but they were clearly influenced by their culture, just like we are. We've seen that over and over as we've walked through Corinthians, right? As they've sued each other, as they've been engaged in various kind of uh, practices at the, at the at public temples, their sexual immorality, they are, they are deeply influenced by their culture. And so are we. They're, they're fighting over what it means to be spiritual. And so they're thinking, surely being spiritual wouldn't include something as gross and noble, ignoble as a body. Maybe for us as Christians, but influenced by our culture, we would love to have a spirituality that didn't require us to believe in awkward things, like a resurrection. Well, Paul calls them fools. And I think he would call us fools as well if we brought our skepticism out. He says, look, this is a ridiculous objection. And his first argument for, for the certainty, really the inevitability of resurrection, is that this is the way the world already works. And you know this, and you accept it out of hand. Creation proclaims the necessity of resurrection, the, 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 the supernatural claim of resurrection, he says, is analogous to the, the natural, variegated process of regeneration. Just look at your fields. There are actually two parts to his argument. First, he observes that what you sow in the ground doesn't come to life until it dies. Now, before you get all scientific on me, Paul is using observational language here, phenomenological language here. He's not claiming in a scientific sense that a seed is dead, but he is claiming what is apparent to all of us is it looks dead. It seems dead. It, it's all dried up. Nothing happens to it by itself. And, and when you put it in the ground, it appears to actually rot. Bury that seed, dried up shell, doesn't seem to be alive. But then a plant grows up. Life comes from something that to all appearances is dead. It's as if God has built an illustration into nature itself of this idea of resurrection. Now, there's another part to his argument. What, what comes up 
doesn't look like what you put in the ground. Like, so you plant that seed, and it grows. Okay, we'll give you that. It grows. It doesn't grow into a bigger seed. It, it grows into something else entirely. And, and actually, lots of different seeds out there, and they all kind of look roughly the same, but all sorts of different bodies come from them, plant bodies. Right? This is what's going on there in verses 37 to 39. As for what you sow, you're not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps a wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. In fact, as he goes on to say there, it's, it's not just plants. Like all sorts of different animal bodies, there's plant bodies, there are human bodies, there are all sorts of different kinds of birds, there's fish, and it's actually not even just here on earth, right? They're, they're, they're heavenly bodies, and those are different from earthly bodies. Sun, moon, and stars, they even are differentiated amongst themselves. Paul actually here is reflecting on Genesis 1. He's kind of working through the categories of the days of creation. And he's pointing out the variety that God created in the natural world. All different kinds of bodies. So when you put it all together, he's basically saying, look, you can look at nature, and in the, in the natural world, you can see that life seems to come from death. It's an organic, not a linear development. You can't look at the thing and know what's going to come in the future. And there are all sorts of them out there, lots of variety. And then he draws the analogy. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 42. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Paul is arguing that the natural world argues for life after death. It's, it's the way the natural world already works. And since God is creator, we should not be at all surprised when he clothes us with spiritual bodies that are not exactly like the natural physical bodies we started with. But, but they're not exactly different either. There's some continuity and some discontinuity. Now, if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, you need to understand, I, I think you probably have acknowledged this, but I'm just going to remind you, if there is no creator, you have a problem. You have a problem. You have to explain where all this came from. This physical world, this, this natural world that we inhabit and we call home. But philosophers have actually been thinking, non, not Christians, like non-religious philosophers have been thinking about this for a long, long time. Science only gets you so far. It doesn't get you to before the beginning. It just gets you close to the beginning. And so then you've got to answer the question, where did the beginning come from? And you really only have two options. Either matter and energy have existed eternally. In other words, it's turtles all the way down. Or... Something came from nothing. 
Now, either of those solutions, and those are really the only two solutions you've got if you reject the idea of a creator, either of those two solutions are just as much a faith claim as the Christians believe that there is a creator God who made all of this. But here's the thing, if there is a creator, why would we be skeptical of resurrection? If there is a creator, why would be why would be skeptical of, of this idea of spiritual bodies? Surely the creator who created all of this could do that. I, I'm not saying that, that Christianity doesn't involve faith. I, I'm, I'm just saying that it's a very reasonable faith. And I actually think a more reasonable faith than your faith, if you're willing to consider it. Because you do have faith. Everybody has faith. Because everybody has to, somehow or another, explain where all this came from. The world, friends, is actually filled intimations and revelations of what God is up to if we're, if we're willing to see it, if, if we're willing to look at it. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. Why would God create a world with these rhythms and patterns of dead seeds producing living plants, why, why would he even bother to create a world like that? Well, maybe it's so that we would have the categories that we need, the, the analogies that we need, in order to understand and believe what he's doing in the gospel. Paul draws a connection between the creation and the new creation to come in these verses. And essentially what he's saying is, look, creation was never the end goal. Creation was always pointing beyond itself to something better. That The natural was always meant to foreshadow and anticipate, as it were, the supernatural, the, the, the spiritual. Because the point of the world was that God, who is spirit, would dwell with his people. Paul appeals to what scripture says about Adam there in, in verse 45. Adam, the, the first man, became a living, or we might translate it, a natural being. But Christ, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But Paul's not denying the incarnation at that moment. He's not saying that Jesus wasn't fully human, like Adam was fully human. No, I, I think what he's doing is he's pointing to the significance of Jesus' resurrection. But just like in nature, there's an order. There's, like a, there's a, a proper sequence. First the natural, then the spiritual. All of us, Paul says, are born bearing the image of the man of dust, the, the, the natural man. That, that's, that's how we come out of our mother's wounds. And that means that as our representative, when Adam fell into sin and died spiritually, we inherited his nature. 
we fell and we died spiritually. What's more, we've gone on to ratify that with our very lives. The decisions, the actual decisions that we've made from nearly the day we came out of the womb. But here's the thing, Paul says, but in Christ, those who are of Christ, oh, you've been born again. You've been given the life of heaven, a spiritual life, and you now bear the image of the man of heaven. There's been a change. Christian, do not live for this world. This world was never intended to be our final home. It was always just the beginning, never the end. The the Garden of Eden was, was the starting line, not the finish line. And so to begin to live for this world would be to be like a child who doesn't want to grow up. A a student who who doesn't want to graduate. The point of being a child is to grow up into being an adult. The point of being a student is to graduate and get on with your life. This life is not the end. It's not the point. The point of this world, from the beginning, was to prepare us for the next. That doesn't mean that what we do in this world is not significant. It's very significant. But we need to understand its significance. It's the significance of preparation. It's the significance of a beginning, not an ultimate end. Do you live that way, Christian? Do you walk through your life that way? Or do you treat this life as if this is all there really is? As if you weren't even a Christian at all? The resurrection is certain because creation proclaims it. But second, and I should tell you, each point gets shorter because the passages get shorter. Second, the creation is certain because God's word demands it. God's word demands it. Look at verse 15. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, Then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? All right, having drawn this analogy from creation, Paul now explains it straight, right? Verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Why is that? Well, for for the same reason that you can't inherit my estate. Only my kids can inherit my estate, right? You've got to be of me, from me, to inherit my estate. Well, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And if if we're going to inherit it, then we've got to be of God. 
We have got to be of his spirit because that kingdom is part of the new creation and therefore we must be new creatures. The kingdom of God, this this spiritual kingdom that is coming, and there's going to be no sin there. Nothing affected by the curse. Nothing even susceptible to sin or brokenness or frailty. And that means that as long as we are in these mortal bodies, we're, we, we can't get in. Our bodies, these bodies of flesh, and in fact the whole cosmos, stand under the curse. And Christian or not, as long as you are in this body, you are susceptible to sin and rebellion, just as Adam was. We cannot enter the kingdom of God as we are. We, we, we can't earn our way there. Nice just doesn't cut it when it comes to the kingdom of God. No, as Paul says, verse 51, we must be changed. We will be changed, he says, in 51. He says it again there at the end of 52. We will be changed. We must be changed. That change begins through the gospel. As God makes us alive, we we call this regeneration, being, being born again, being made new spiritually. But regeneration is the beginning, not the end. Regeneration is just really the, the start. The, the end is this complete physical transformation that Paul is talking about here. The, theologians call it glorification. Our final and complete transformation into embodied souls fit for heaven. Embodied souls who, who belong there, who can inherit it because they are of it. What does glorification mean? I don't think we know. Not really. But we know a few things. We know we won't be like Adam because Adam was able to sin and able not to sin. And Adam chose badly. We're not going to be like Adam. We're not going back to Eden. It certainly is not going to be like we are after the fall, but when all of humanity was not able not to sin. Like it is our nature to sin as fallen human beings. Well, it's not going to be like that. And Christian, it's not going to be like you are today. Because you've been made new, Christian, you are able not to sin. You're able to say no to sin. But oftentimes we don't. No, the the great hope of glorification is not just that we get new bodies, but what comes with those new bodies. We will not be able to sin. Not even if you wanted to, but of course, you're not going to want to. The desire is never even going to appear. 
And because you're not going to want to, you're never going to do it. Not able to sin. Not because you're being held back from it against your will, because it is fully your will that you don't want to sin. Oh, my goodness. That's even better than a back that works. That's going to be better than than losing those last 20 pounds. That's going to be better than not having a disease anymore or dealing with cancer. I mean, those will all be great things too. But not able to sin? Oh, this is what glorification is about. And this is why not only are we not able to sin, we won't be able to die. And we won't want to, because a life without sin is heaven. <laughs> a life without sin is a life of joy. It's, it's, it's a life of peace and happiness and fulfillment. Resurrection life, Christian isn't just more of this life. That would be hell. The resurrection life is a different quality of life altogether. As as Paul has been saying throughout, really going all the way back to verse 35, the end is better than the beginning. And that was the point all along. Not to take us back to Eden, where... Adam could not sin, but he could also sin. No, but to get us to the throne room of God himself, to get us to paradise with God, where there is no sin, no evil, no sorrow, no wickedness, and not even the chance for it. Paul says that we won't all fall asleep there. That is, we won't all die there in verse 51. But when Christ returns on judgment day, the dead in Christ will be raised with these resurrection bodies, and the living in Christ at that point will be changed into those resurrection bodies. And and it will happen in an instant, he says, in the twinkling of an eye, verse 52. There'll be no time to prepare at that point. There'll be no time to set things in order. At that moment, the final destiny of all who are still living will be irrevocably set. Just as the fate of all who die is irrevocably set at their death. This is why this message matters if you're not a Christian. Don't don't kid yourself. You can think about this later you can put it off and deal with it later. Because you don't know what's coming later. You don't know when you're going to die and no longer have a chance to deal with God and the good news of the gospel. You don't know when Jesus is going to come back. I, I certainly don't. If, if, if you think you've got a direct line, let me know. But I don't, I don't think you know either. So today is the day to deal with this. Because on that day, for those who are in Christ... What was corruptible will be incorruptible. What was mortal will be immortal. Paul uses this imagery of like putting on a new set of clothes there in verse 53 and 54, clothing ourselves with incorruptibility and 
immortality. And he says, at that moment, Scripture will be fulfilled. Paul quotes both Isaiah, which we heard read earlier, and Hosea, where God promised that the day would come when death, death which up until this point thinks it's one, because it's got like a 100% success rate. Nobody's, you know, defeated death yet. No, on that day, actually, death is going to be defeated. And God's going to taunt death and swallow death up in victory. I mean, think about that for a moment. God is going to trash talk death on the last day. Oh, yeah? You thought you had these people? Huh. Think again. Where's your sting? Where's your victory? You don't know nothing, death, because I've swallowed you up. Now, is this just religious optimism? I don't think so. Paul uses the language of necessity throughout this section. Did you notice that? The corruptible must be clothed with the incorruptible. The mortal must be clothed with the immortal. Why? Because God said so in his word. God's word cannot fail because it's God's word, not my word. He's not like us. And I make promises all the time that I don't keep, sadly. He's not like us who, who, who speak beyond our ability to accomplish. We, we just make promises that we can't pull off. He's not like us, whose words fail all the time, even with the best of intentions. Now, Paul says it's necessary for these things to happen because God said they would. The same God who spoke creation into existence, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is the God who said death would be defeated for all who trust in him. We can take it to the bank. Sometimes, sometimes people wonder, what, what is faith? What, what does it mean really to exercise faith? This is what it means. It means taking God at his word. It means trusting that when he says something, it's done. And living like it. Now, now friends, it's, it's inescapable in this passage. We have to recognize that heaven has a dress code. It has a dress code. I know we're not used to that here on the West Coast, where it's like, just come as you are, whatever. You can be in the fanciest restaurant in town, and there's a guy next to you in shorts and flip-flops. I'm from the East Coast, spent some time in England. I'm just here to tell you as, as like, a, a visitor from a foreign country, like, that's not the way most of the rest of the world works. Um, no, there are all sorts of places that have a dress code. And in order to get in, like, still to this day, men have got to wear a jacket and a tie. And if you show up and you don't have a jacket or a tie, you might just get turned away. But, but what's one of the really interesting things about some of those places is a lot of those places will have in a back closet a jacket and a tie for you to put on. They, they provide what you need because at the end of the day, they want your money, <laughs> regardless of how you're dressed. Well, well, here's the thing. To be seated at the heavenly banquet table 
you got to be dressed right. You're going to have to be wearing incorruptibility. You're going to have to be wearing immortality. And you can't provide that outfit for yourself. There is no store on earth where you can go buy that. No, you, you need Jesus to be like that thoughtful maitre d' who has just what you need and provides it for you. This is what Jesus does. He gives us the clothes that we need to sit at his table. And Christian, you've already been given the most important part of that outfit that you need. You've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You're you're wearing the thing that is most important to be seated at that table. All all that remains is just the the outer garment, the, the, the jacket, as it were, of that spiritual body. So I know for many of us, death feels fearful. It's it's utterly normal and natural to want to avoid death. I get that. And for many of us, death and even the thought of death brings about a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. If you're a Christian, you don't need to fear death. Because you know what death is? Death is like going into a changing room and putting on a much better set of clothes, a much better outfit. I love going to the store and trying on clothes that are better than the ones I have. I like the way they make me look, even if I can't afford them. That's what death is going to be like. Going into a changing room and coming out dressed way better than you ever imagined. And there's nothing to fear about that. The resurrection is certain. Because creation proclaims it. We've got all these examples built into our lives around us. And because God's word demands us. But how can we be sure? Well, third, it's because Jesus Christ secures it. He secures it. Look there in verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having quoted the triumphant poetry of the prophets, Paul explains now in two brief verses the theology of death and resurrection. The the sting of death, the the reason that we die, he says, is sin. It's because of of our rebellion against God. And, And the power of sin to cause our death is the law. The law condemns us. God said to Adam, the day you disobey me by eating of this tree that I told you you can't eat, on that day you will die. And that's exactly what happened. He died spiritually, was separated from God, and we all are in that same death. But Jesus Christ, we're told, gives us the victory over death. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. I've kind of referred to it several times, but here it is in full. Jesus Christ was not condemned by the law because he had no sin. 
He, he kept the law. He, he obeyed God perfectly. He loved God perfectly. He honored God with his life perfectly as we were all made to do. He lived a fully human life, but without sin. There was no reason for him to die. But then he did die. Not for his sin. No, he, he, he voluntarily gave his life, dying the death that the law demanded of us, dying it in our place. He died as our Adam, as our representative, paying the debt that we owed to justice. But since he had no sin, death had no claim on him. Jesus Christ got up from the dead again as our representative, and now he gives us victory. Adam gave us death. Jesus gives us victory. We, we died in Adam, but now by faith in Christ, we live in Christ with a life that death cannot touch because it's Jesus' life alive in us. That life begins now. As I've already said, this is just the beginning. And it only gets better from here. This is just the foretaste. The banquet to come is going to be fabulous. The life in store for us in Christ, in the gospel, is the immortal, incorruptible life of heaven itself. And if you're not a Christian, this is what we're inviting you to. We're not, we're not inviting you to clean up your life. We're not inviting you to become a self-righteous rule keeper. No, we're inviting you to know eternal life, which you find by putting your faith in Christ. We'd love to talk to you more about this. But, but let me be clear. To refuse Christ's life is to remain in death. It is to remain in a death that begins now and only gets worse from here. I think back to the words of Paul in verse 42. Sown in dishonor, but for those outside of Christ, raised in dishonor. Sown in weakness, but for those outside of Christ, raised in an eternal weakness. I don't like to contemplate it. I don't like to talk about it. But it is the clear message of Scripture. There are only two ways. The way of life and the way of death. And we will remain in one or the other forever. I would just urge you, come talk to me or to the person you came with about what it would mean for you to enter into this eternal life. What does all of this mean for you if you're a Christian? Well, this is where we conclude. A very brief fourth point. The Christian's resurrection is certain. So Christian, don't give up. Don't give up before you get there. Look at verse 58. 
Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There it is. Paul says, don't give up. Don't be moved from this gospel that I've declared to you. Don't let go of the faith. Don't, don't settle for these lesser definitions of what it means to be spiritual. The Corinthians have been struggling with. Our labor of faith, he says, our, our, our labor in the gospel, our labor in holding on to Christ faithfully is not in vain. Because glory and immortality are guaranteed for all who persevere in faith. Just like me trudging up the Grand Canyon with no water and the sun beating down on me and getting quite dizzy and really not sure that I could make it. The reality would have been, had I stepped off the trail at that point, just laid down somewhere off the path. Might not have got up again. And all the steps that I would have taken to that point would have been in vain. But if I persevered, if I kept going in faith that there was water at that campground, then in fact, energy restoring water was guaranteed at that campground. It was there. I had to keep walking. Christian, we're not being asked to do some feat like hiking the Grand Canyon with too little water. We're being asked to hold on to the gospel. Just hold on. Don't move off the gospel to something else. Don't, don't move from what has been delivered to you. Instead, believe it and live like it. Because your resurrection is guaranteed. Would you join me in prayer? Take a moment and just consider what it is that might cause you to move off the gospel or maybe what it is that's keeping you from coming to the gospel. And just confess that to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we confess that we look at this world and our lives and we don't see it as we ought. We see it as the end, as the finish line, as the goal, not as the beginning. Give, give us eyes to see, Lord, the way that you have created this world around us, the way you have created us, that, that would cause us to see that, that far country is the place that we actually belong, that you're calling us to. Give, give us eyes to see all the, the helps and the encouragements in the world around us that, that point us to faith, that point us to you. Strengthen our faith that we might not be moved. 
that our lives might not be in vain, but that our faith might be vindicated on that last day as we join you in trash-talking death because of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.